0: Scott is over three decades in the bike and outdoor industries, most recently serving as CEO of Nutcase, where he orchestrated a merger with Bravo Sports in 2016. He started his career working alongside his dad to build Cannondale, starting at the young age of 11 and coming on full-time after completing college. Par to that, Scott was with Scott Sports and also CEO of Club Ride Apparel. Scott Montgomery, welcome into the corner office. Thank you. You know, you've got a very exciting background. I've enjoyed reading about it. And I want to hear more about getting to, going to work with your dad back at the age of 11. So maybe kind of let's start with that. Tell us a little bit about what your early years were like. Uh, your dad sounds like he was an entrepreneur as well.
1: Yeah, he was. Uh, my Both my dad and my grandfather. Um, uh, yeah, I was uh, a kind of kid that when you uh, hung out with your dad, mostly it was uh, around a work environment. I, I fell asleep at the... Uh, at, the, at a restaurant dinner table more than once uh, <laughs> at 10 or 11 o'clock when we were still uh, having an impromptu meeting that I uh, I was attending.
0: And was your dad and granddad uh, always in the uh, sports equipment and the bike industry? What, what was their background?
1: My grandfather started an industrial glove company during the Depression because rubber was no longer uh, available because it started to uh, be in high-demand Actually, that wasn't during the depression. It was uh, during World War II, and the, there was not enough rubber because it was required for war. So he he built a company called uh, Edmont that built latex gloves, uh, which preserved people's hands a lot better. And then my father mm-hmm. was involved in businesses since I can remember, but the one that really I latched onto was was Cannondale, which he started when I was ten or eleven.
0: And so, what was it like, you know, growing up as a kid of an entrepreneur?
1: Well, you certainly saw the good, the bad, and the ugly. I think everybody uh, always <laughs> expects that it's just, you know, big success. And uh, fortunately, we were able to have a lot of that. But uh, the real entrepreneurial life, uh, as you probably know, is, is a lot of hardship. and
0: uh, A lot of cyclical.
1: It is. And it, it's a lot of uh, hanging in there when things are tough and, uh, and keeping a positive outlook and finding a way to keep the lights on even when there's uh, no money in the bank.
0: So did you kind of feel some of that when you were growing up and, you know, times would be good and times would be kind of tough and peanut butter and sandwich was uh, kind of what was on the, was on the dinner table that night?
1: Yes. uh, Most of my time uh, working with my father at Cannondale, I mean, we went public in 94 and honestly, of, of the years that I worked there, the vast majority were extremely challenging. Uh, Very, very few of it, what I would call successful though. Uh, we were always growing, but uh, people didn't realize how t- difficult it was to, to keep, particularly when a business is growing quickly, to keep cash uh, coming in to support the growth.
0: A lot of cash has to go in to keep it going. So um, was that uh, full-time work then? Uh, did you do other things when you were growing up? Was there the the paper route or the sell on the mistletoe or other types of things that you did uh, while you were going to school in, in your early years?
1: Well, my mother tells me that I uh, sold rocks at five. I I don't know if I <laughs> I don't know if that's quite true or not. Uh, but she tells me that, and I do remember starting a bike shop in an empty garage uh, with a, another friend at eight. I sold seeds to get uh, sports equipment so I could have a nice new basketball uh, at around ten. So uh, nice. I don't remember anybody teaching me to do that stuff. It just seemed like I was a very middle class family in a small apartment. And uh, if you wanted things, the expectation is you had to figure out how to get them.
0: What part of the country did you grow up in? Uh, Columbus, Ohio. And uh, was that all the way through your junior high and high school years? Mostly.
1: Uh, my mother uh, and stepfather later in life, we moved down to Texas for a few years uh, to finish up high school, but a um, little bit of time down there, but mostly in Ohio.
0: Any other extracurriculars while you were uh you know, going to school? It sounds like sports was a part of it. Uh, were you competitive or did more of the, uh, off-road racing and, you know, bike riding and so forth? What, what were the kind of things that, you know, kept you busy, uh, outside of school?
1: I would say mostly the normal things, uh, you know, sports for sure. I was very fortunate to enjoy that. I was probably not as good as, uh, I thought I was, but, um, <laughs> a little bit of student government. I, I did a few, few things in high school. Uh, around keg parties and stuff that I'm not very proud of today. I would, I would kill my son or daughter if they did that. But uh, yes, that's uh, right. <laughs> fortunately, we uh, got through that unscathed and uh, have moved on.
0: And uh, studies wise, uh, were you a good student? Uh, you excel in your classes? Anything in particular you liked uh, in kind of those junior high, high school years?
1: You know, not particularly. Uh, I was very fortunate. My grandfather, when I was in fifth grade, kind of financed uh, me going to a private school. Nice. And that gave me a huge advantage because uh, for two reasons. One, I, I got around a lot of really well-to-do smart families and that one of my friend's parents owned the Pittsburgh Pirates and you were like, wow, what a what a <laughs> lucky guy you are. Um, yeah. so it exposed me to, uh, uh, opportunities that I probably wouldn't have had in, in made school, but I certainly was just an average student. I did like math and, uh, I definitely, uh, enjoyed school, but I was never, uh, I was never one of the kids that could, could get great grades.
0: Was Cannondale kind of a full-time then job for you while you were going to school? Or was that something that uh, wasn't as, you weren't much involved with in high school?
1: You know, uh, I did stay involved in it in high school. And I think that's where I um, continued to really enjoy that and, and got closer to it. In college, I did some other things. I uh, I ended up getting talked into uh, selling uh, dictionaries door-to-door by a friend of mine. And any time that I'm feeling somewhat overwhelmed in a job, I just think back and say, well, I could be in Detroit, Michigan in 1984 (laughs) on a $12 bicycle going door-to-door. And uh, let me tell you, when you wake up a Highly underpaid, uh, non-working husband who's probably had six beers and been on the couch all afternoon. <laughs> You're just glad to get out of his way, much less uh, uh, not uh, get beaten up. So, uh, uh,
0: oh my God, how many years did you do that? I uh, uh, Did it a
1: summer? Sum, a summer and a half, and uh, wow. I, I will say that was great experience. Though you know, if you if you learn to support yourself, you'll never starve.
0: What were some of the key lessons that uh, you picked up? And no, not just that job, some of the other part-time work you did while in high school and college.
1: You know, I would just say uh, mostly that I did learn from my father and grandfather uh, that I did like to work. Um, and I still do. I credit my wife for pushing me to go on vacation um, more than I have in the past. But I, um, I definitely learned a very strong work ethic.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it. And uh, did you go to college right away out of high school? Uh, well, you were to a private high school, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Prior to going to college. And, and tell me about your college selection process and, you know, what you ended up studying.
1: Well, I uh, ended up going to a school down in Florida called Rollins College, uh, which, uh, again, I was very fortunate my grandfather uh, was able to help me with. Uh, and um, I started out my freshman year really enjoying political science and a lot of history. Mm. Uh, but then I realized... I, I remember after one break over Christmas, I came back and I met with a professor and I was like, there's no way I could have gotten a, you know, a, a D minus on my exam, and it, which brought my grade down to a C. And he showed me the paper all marked in red. And it was a turning point. I said, well, I'm going to move towards business uh, because I'm good at that and I can get good grades. And I frankly, was kind of tired of getting beat up in the, uh, some of the other classes that I found very interesting. So
0: what was your interest in political science? What, how did that kind of come about?
1: You know, just probably my mother uh, uh, was a history buff and a school teacher. So I think she just kind of being around that. But uh, I certainly was not, I did not excel at it at all.
0: Well, it sounds like your parents had some, you know, pretty strong influence on you. What, what were some of the leadership lessons you got from mom and dad?
1: Well, I was really lucky to uh, have my father running businesses and my grandfather from a very, you know, my grandfather was mostly retired by the time I remember, but just showing how to treat people. Mm-hmm. My grandfather had an exceptional ability to uh, have a common touch and he was the least arrogant man I've ever met in my life. And, uh, and that, that, uh, just showing you that way to treat people. And my father was excellent at that as well. My father made me at Cannondale the first year and a half to pretty much every entry-level job in the company. <laughs> and uh, that was fantastic because it built relationships and it also told you to not expect uh, to um, have things handed to you. You had to work hard for them.
0: Yeah. So you said you ended up getting a business degree at Rawlings. Uh, and what other type of work did you do while you were at school other than the, uh, selling the encyclopedias?
1: Yeah, that was pretty much it. Uh, I, I really I was ready to go get an MBA after I finished college, and my father really said, "Hey, come to Cannondale, and I'll give you a real world MBA." And that was great. Though I did over the course of the next ten years, I would take uh, uh, leadership and other um, you know MBA like programs. I did the Harvard Owners Presidents Program. I did something in uh, with Columbia. I did something with uh, the American School of Management, I think, in Paris on finance. So definitely along the way, uh, I supported that because I, I do really believe those skills that you get uh, are needed. But um, he did well by me. He really did teach me the business from the ground up at Cannondale, which was a very fortunate opportunity.
0: So you went there full time after you graduated? Absolutely. And how long were you there?
1: Uh, I was there basically uh, 84
0: to 97. Oh, wow. Quite a long period of time. And so that's kind of when you went through the rotation and did all the entry-level jobs, or had you been doing that during summers while you were uh, you know, still in high school?
1: A little bit in high school, uh, but mostly in that period. And then I remember one night at about 8.30, which was usually the time he and I would have conversations. You never wanted to ask for anything with him in the morning because... <laughs> You wouldn't get any attention, but, uh, he, uh, he said to me, would you be interested in moving to Europe and starting Cannondale Europe? And I think I was 27 at the time. And wow. I was like, absolutely. And in two weeks i had packed my bags and, uh, was off to Europe and, and, uh, what a sensational opportunity for a young man to be able to live in Europe. And especially at that time, you know, the wall was coming down the, yeah. The unification of Europe was coming together, so uh, it was a very dynamic period in
0: uh, history. Were you single single at the time or moved your family over there?
1: Yes, I was single, which I think I couldn't have done it any other way because we were working ridiculous hours. Uh,
0: so, Did you build a team there? Was that part of what you had to do, or was there an existing business already? Tell me a little bit about that experience.
1: Yeah, that was really the first uh, time I got to set up a real company. Another gentleman in our company and myself went over, and we started in an office, just the two of us. And uh, within two and a half years, we'd built a strong organization, a European headquarters with an assembly facility, and uh, we took off in the market. I'll I'll never forget. I was uh, presenting a a business plan, which that was pretty early on, and we were in the Netherlands, and we were on the fifth floor of the bank, and it wasn't in. Uh, amsterdam was in a small town outside of outside of the center of the netherlands and the banker listened to our plan and he said well young men uh you know this is the netherlands we know more about the bicycle than uh than (laughs) probably anybody in the entire world and i thank you so much for coming today but uh we have no interest and so i walked up to him to the the elevator and i said you know i don't remember his name but i said listen uh this business is going to be successful and uh, you really need to change your mind about this. We're going to be a great customer. And he kind of looked at me, you know, befuddled. And, and by the time I moved to Japan, he could no longer approve our loans. Uh, they had to be approved by his boss's boss in Amsterdam.
0: That's awesome. So you ended up doing business with him, though, in the end?
1: Uh, yeah, we did end up going with him. But, uh, and I think that's another part of definitely entrepreneurship. I'm sure you've learned as well that you can't accept no, you just. You just have to, uh, uh, when somebody says no, that just means you've got more work to do.
0: <laughs> that's right. So how many years were you in Europe?
1: Uh, actually, only three, uh, but it was going very quickly. And then my business partner that had come over with me, uh, he really felt like uh, he wanted to take over the operation. And I said, that's great. It's launched. And then I moved straight to Japan and set up the facility there, which uh, which was great, a great uh, opportunity as well.
0: Kind of did it all over again. Two or three years over there as well? Exactly. So looking at those two international assignments where you pretty much just started from scratch. I know you had a base business in the US, a good product, but you know, you had to do the introduction, you had to, you know, establish the relationships as you shared. What what would you say were some of the biggest challenges from the people standpoint? You know, how did you kind of find good people and ensure that they were the folks that, you know, really were the right ones for Canadale?
1: Yeah, you know, I think in that way that's where I've been the luckiest in life. I have just always seemed to be able to find uh, good people and you know, I really define a business as, at the 30,000 foot level is really three things. Uh usually a great product, outstanding people and capital. And if you have those three things, you ultimately will be successful. It just comes down to hard work. Uh but um I just feel fortunate that uh, I've had uh, the ability to run into great people and um, uh, hire great people who ultimately uh, were better at at a lot of the functions than I was um, or when put in the right environment uh, have blossomed. And uh, I continue to think that if you have great people and finding great people, which I know you have a tremendous amount of experience with, is one of the most important things to building a successful business.
0: But it's got to be tough to do that in a a new market. You know, you don't necessarily speak the language. I know the Dutch are very proficient in English, but still, you know, you've got cultural differences. Japan must have been a challenge. How did you kind of, you know, pivot your learnings about hiring good people in the U.S. and the teams that you built there, you know, in those international markets? Did you find that the, the same characteristics were true? In other words, finding people that were... Good at certain areas that were obviously experts. Obviously, what I mean by that is kind of disciplinary expertise. Did you find cultural things that you tried to look for? Talk to me a little bit about how you, you know, kind of sorted through those in in those international markets.
1: Well, I would say uh, what my father taught me for sure was to always look for people that were passionate about uh, what they were doing. So certainly in the cycling industry. If you have a love for riding a bike, uh, that's a great starting point. Um, And then really generally empowering people to let them soar. I think another area that's important, and my father also taught me, is really don't try to build jobs around boxes, but build jobs around people. So even if you're in, say, marketing but you are a good salesperson. Well, don't hesitate to put design the job around the person's skill set. And if somebody is just say not very organized, and that is holding them back one facet of their job, uh, then don't. Rather than try to make them be good at that, to you know put them back in the box, be more flexible to say, well, hey, the person over here in purchasing is better at that. So even though that is technically a marketing function we're going to hand that piece of the, the job to somebody else. And that builds a interdependency and also a really nice, uh, uh, keeps people good at doing what they're good at. And generally, uh, if you're doing what you're good at, you're going to feel good about it and do it well. And if you have something that you hate about your job, if you can
0: throw it over the fence, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. So I, I think that's what I learned on that. And and that served, has served me very well because especially in more mid-market companies like you, uh, and I are, have talked about the, this is, uh, it's sometimes you can't find the person that's absolutely perfect, but if they're, if they're good at eight out of the 10 functions, then you should uh, not to discourage them because there's one or two things that they're not as good at. Uh, that's, a, that's not a good way to keep a good person happy.
0: So 97, I think is when you said you moved on from Cannondale. Uh, was that a tough thing or was that a kind of a natural transition at the time with the company?
1: Yeah, in hindsight, it was probably the biggest uh, mistake I ever made in my career. <laughs> really? Yeah, it, it changed the balance of power within the organization. So um, in hindsight, but I, I did it for good reasons at the time. Um,
0: was dad still there at the time? Yeah, he
1: was. Um, but I had a, a young family and I had probably overworked uh, up to that time. And I, I had a sense that if I didn't, establish a good relationship with my kids, I might uh, miss out on that. So I did it for personal reasons. And uh, I can say, which is, I think at the end of the day, the most important thing, I've got uh, wonderful children who I love very much, but and have done are strong individuals. So that was uh, well worth it. But uh, it definitely hurt our, uh, hurt our business. And that, uh, that is what it is.
0: Well, you don't get that time back with family right? You know, the kids are only young ones, so it sounds like you did it for the right reasons. And and at that time, then, did you go into more entrepreneurial pursuits? Uh, Tell me about what kind of came next.
1: Yeah, I really uh, took some personal time, and uh, we had taken the company public, so I was uh, pretty freed up uh, financially. I learned to fly an airplane, did did some things, build a uh, house in Arizona. (laughs) But then I ended up coming back into the business, uh, and it was a um, a very hard time because our business had gone through uh, a reorganization, but it was also tremendously uh, dynamic, and and I learned a tremendous amount because I think there's this kind of natural uh, thinking in life that if you just work hard every day and and move forward one that every day will be better and the next and the next. It's a little bit of kind of the American dream, but I think if you look at most people's lives, uh, even ones that are extremely successful in, say, their careers between health and family and uh, other issues, environment of uh, you know, certainly things like recessions in 08, um, you're probably going to go through some tough periods. And uh, uh, so anyway, coming back into the company and reorganizing, I learned a tremendous amount. And that actually made me a, a stronger business person because I think you do learn more through adversity than you do actually when everything's working really well. When everything's working well, I kind of want to say anybody can run the company. It's <laughs> you know it's when you wake up and it's 2008 and 32 uh, percent of your futures orders melted in a in 90 days and your bank comes in and wants to lower your credit line and
0: 25 uh, percent of your customers uh, just went bankrupt.
1: Exactly. That's when you have to look in the mirror and pull your pants up and say. I don't know how I'm going to get through today, but I better get out. Of
0: <laughs> I better be a big boy today. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, so I want to go back to something that's been a real common thread in these interviews. And it's so great to hear and refreshing to hear you say it, Scott. But you talked about passion, right? You know, and how important that is. Have you found that, you know, obviously, Cannondale is so special given that you got involved at such a young age and dad's been a big part of it. And of course, lots of friends and I'm sure family members and so forth. But, you know, leaving a family-owned company even after it goes public, um, and then moving on to something else, Have you been able to continue to find that passion? How, how do you how, have you kept that alive, I guess, is the question I'm asking as it relates to you, the pursuits that you've followed since then?
1: That's a great question. i I think whether you own the majority of the shares or uh, somebody else does, at the end of the day, if you feel the responsibility for the people that work for you, or work with you, because um, that's really what it is. Then it doesn't really matter uh, whether it's family or non-family, and and you have a sense of of uh, personal pride and sense of uh, responsibility. Um, so I've been fortunate to stay uh, mostly in the sports and outdoor arena, uh, which is a passion of mine. I'm a I'm a very active uh, person, but I think. That hasn't been hard for me because generally, whether the company is different or not, I I can fall in love with the products. And once you fall in love with the products, then uh, the and the people, what you do as well, then you don't want to let them down. I, you they're trusting you for guidance. You want to make sure that you do the very best you can do for them.
0: That's great. Good to hear. Other than passion, is there anything else that you think is kind of a, a common denominator in your career and success that you've had?
1: I would always say to any young person or younger person that, of course, follow um, your passions uh, as early in life as you can. I would mm-hmm. I would never take a, a job out of college that had X more uh, remuneration over something that you were really loved. Uh, I think that uh, if you, if you do what you love, you will probably excel at it over time. And that will show and reflect in the people uh, that you work with. So um, I did have one.
0: And the rewards will come, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I did have one time where I stepped out. I was, I had an interest in education for my mother and I, I tried to build a charter school and uh, I can honestly say I did a, not a very good job of it I, I didn't put much time and money fortunately into it but I think it you have to love what you're you're doing and and then you will love the people generally around it and it'll attract the same kinds of people with the same kinds of interests so I right. I definitely would say that I think that 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 is important uh, to try to ex- pick things that you really believe in because this your life goes on. I mean, you're going to spend eight, 10, 12 hours a day, probably, right. which is a significant portion of your time you're awake. So if you're doing something you love and and are excited about, then you'll probably uh, be a lot better at it than if it's uh, just trying to make that extra ring on the ladder or, or that extra uh, compensation number.
0: Oh, well, you know, the old adage, uh, find something you love and you never work a day in your life, right?
1: Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's a great line.
0: Your first CEO position. Now, um, was that at Scott Sports or was it Club Ride Apparel?
1: It was really Club Ride. Yeah. It, assuming you take out the uh, the Cannondale Europe and Japan, though, I did have a parent company to lean on and that was uh, sure. extremely important. But Club Ride was the first time when I really had to manage all aspects. And um, that so that was a, uh, a really great experience. And it was the first time that I didn't have somebody to lean on at all so that that was yeah
0: now were you were you placed did you come up through the ranks there no i believe you came in as ceo correct
1: yeah but it was really uh ceo could small. be yeah it was a really small company that were basically yeah. they were basically the founder and myself so uh, you right. know we unpacked the boxes and uh <laughs> you know and cleaned the toilets for sure
0: Did whatever it takes right
1: yeah, yeah but yeah well, I think we built it into a reasonably sized company uh, before I moved on, and and that uh, was a great experience for me uh, to have that opportunity, especially to go out and do the banking 100 percent on my shoulders and the uh, uh, raise the private equity. Uh, you know, raising private equity is a, a an element that pretty much every entrepreneur and CEO has to deal with, uh, and that that oftentimes can be a, a it's probably. I mean, people's always your biggest uh, challenge, but uh, it's certainly second if if your business
0: is growing. And did you leave there at an event? Was it a private equity investment led you to move on at that stage to, um, well, I guess it was Nutcase was next, right?
1: Yeah, Nutcase was next. I mean, I think it's fair to say that uh, I'm humble from the things I've done well. And also I haven't had not, uh, a perfect track record. The uh, We brought in private equity money, which, allowed us to grow the business to the next level but the private equity it, we had a couple of things happen particularly with the US dollar got considerably stronger and our exports did not meet mm-hmm. some of our expectations um, and so we missed some numbers and uh, that ultimately led to me leaving the company but that's part of being a CEO you know you're yeah you're gonna be the person when when you make the commitment to to uh, another person and you bring in money, if you do a good job, you should expect to stay. But if you, uh, and, and I think we were still doing a good job, but we were not hitting the expectations that I had originally set. And, uh, you know, you're going to live by the sword and die by the sword. And, uh, yeah. uh, but that was uh, still a good, um, in some ways, still a good experience because it uh, it, it enabled me to really have the, the responsibility and see the positives and minuses of that.
0: Well, you talked earlier about some of the best lessons we can learn is going through diversity, right? You know, the 2008 to 2010 period was a tough one for me. I was involved with the business that uh, eventually had to fold. We didn't go bankrupt. We met our creditors, but who would have first? Who would have thought? You know, 2007 seven was a was a banner year, and we're all on our way in eight, and then you know you hit the brick wall. So, tell me a little bit about some of the lessons that you took away from that experience. You know, what if you look back and said, "Gosh, you know." yeah, it was great. We did a lot of good stuff, but you know, what I took to my next job was fill in the blank.
1: Well, certainly uh, paying attention to cash flow uh, is so, so important.
0: Yeah. Any business. <laughs>
1: yeah. Cause it can really, uh, you know, you can, you can be profitable and still, uh, not be successful if, if you get on the wrong side. So certainly paying attention to that element and, um, And then I think another side that I would really say uh, is having a good lawyer (laughs) is always. (laughs) uh, I I think every uh, every CEO needs a strong attorney uh, next to them as well because the details of operating agreements, uh, the details of um, covenants, uh, the details of uh, the uh, financial terms and conditions, and they're getting uh, in this litigious world that we live in as they get more and more, uh, as those operating agreements move to 30, 40, 50, hundred pages, paragraph seven on, uh, <laughs> on page 38, which you've skimmed, uh, or maybe you read the first time and it got changed in edit number seven, uh, <laughs> right. can, can be very uh, tricky. So, uh, c- certainly not, uh, not glorious, but, uh, something t- Watching cash flow and then also being sure to pay attention to the details and agreements can be uh, very um, very important.
0: So tell me about that case and was it a merger with Bravo Sports? It looks like it, right?
1: Yeah, that was a really uh, fun uh, year and a half. Um, the business was uh, a little upside down, and uh, we were able to really get it uh, going very quickly uh, and back into a healthy position. We had to do some tough things like. Make some big expense cuts, and uh, and but we made those cuts. We we took them. We reacted quickly and made the changes, and uh, added new products. And everybody worked extra hard, and we got the company really turned around in in six months and profitable. And then uh, we ran into the folks at Bravo Sports, and they were interested in growing and adding more cycling activities and so they acquired the company
0: awesome and then uh, did you move on shortly after that or stay on for a retain period
1: yeah a retain period of about uh three months uh three to five months i think it was something like that
0: and now rental cycling how exciting
1: yeah and that's uh we're really really excited about where we are right now with the company uh we have about a 37 week from start inception to finish to get a product to market which uh is relatively yeah. long, um, and uh, so I started with the company in August, and we have uh, our best collection of products that the company I think has ever had. That we will go to market really uh, formally July first of this year, but uh, we're actually starting. We uh, I'll attend an event next week, and we'll have I think uh, a good, better, best product line in uh, mountain road gravel. And electric bikes, so I I'm really excited about the Fantastic. the year ahead. I think yeah. well, we've got there everything we need. We've got great products, and we have a uh, strong people. And uh, we've been uh, our ownership is a company out of Chicago, and they have uh, funded the company to enable us to do that.
0: Well, let's talk about the people side. Um, you know, when you what, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you want to invest in?
1: Well, I'm an optimistic person, and I generally look for people who are or really uh, have strong work work ethic. Love the cycling. Uh, in my case, uh, industry or outdoor. The passion, absolutely, and of course, integrity is important. You should, uh, especially if you're bringing somebody into your organization. Uh, I generally would would pay for experience. I I think uh, that's a, a great aspect, and uh, tenacity and perseverance, of course, uh, just just to keep going when. Um, when sometimes it doesn't, I can't tell you the number of times in my career where I've gone to bed at night with not really knowing the solution. And somehow by the morning of the next day, you found uh, yeah. you found the path. But back to your pe- key people, and I know that's uh, a, a something you do uh, a lot of, uh, getting the right people in the right positions is
0: absolutely imperative for a, a company to succeed. How many employees now at uh, Arnold Cycling, if you don't mind telling us?
1: Yeah, we're at about, I believe, 120 uh, on, wow, on a worldwide great. basis.
0: And taking in quite a few as you grow at this stage or kind of seeing where the market's going to lead uh, in the next couple of weeks?
1: Well, certainly uh, we we have an aggressive plan for 2019 um, and we're already working on that. As, it's, as funny as it sits, it's only April 6th of, yeah, of yeah. 18, but you have to be thinking ahead. And when you have that the ramp up time of, it takes at least yeah, 6 6 months to turn a, a molder into a uh, a skilled molder so you have to be thinking long term so we'll know by the end of the summer but uh i i think we're hiring mostly in the uh in the production areas and then once we get the production areas in place and then we can look at the uh the revenue line and the gross margin line for the future year then we usually around the fourth quarter we'll back into what expenses we can afford to support
0: that growth. And are you involved in hiring now and doing a lot of interviewing or is that being done more at the production staff level?
1: Well, our uh, our operations manager and plant manager definitely do the factory hiring, but we've brought on nine new sales reps uh, since August and they are doing a, an excellent job. So we certainly have expanded our, our sales force. And uh, now that the product line is in, I think really good shape. Uh, I definitely will go into sales mode uh, over the next three months to ensure ensure we hit the numbers. Because I find, and I think it always comes back to each CEO has to also determine what you're really good at. Much as we talk about those boxes, and then uh, uh, make sure that you're doing what you're good at, and then support yourself. Uh, Fortunately, we have a strong uh, leadership team of of seven leaders in the company that really uh, share those responsibilities, uh, a very strong CFO. And with that team, we can divide and conquer. But uh, definitely, I'll be going in a, back into dictionary uh, door-to-door mode here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, finding good salespeople in any organization is a challenge, right? Because it is about uh, skill set, when you think about you know interviewing salespeople, what, what are some of the questions you like to ask to be able to get at you know, the qualifications you're seeking?
1: Well, certainly with salespeople, they need to have a, an expertise in understanding the products. I'm not a huge fan, per se, of bringing somebody in that's been, let's say, a great copier salesman and then put them into. Right. Uh, generally, uh, for me personally, I don't look at those resumes, even if they have been exceptionally good. I've found that 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 does not pay good dividends. Um, I tend to look for people that have been selling like products and that also will have the relationships because right. still uh, even in this modern age, and of course D to C is becoming more and more important in the marketplace, but you still need the relationship and the trust of the, of the bike shop owner or the representative or the uh, bike brand. So uh, having an, an expertise with, and the relationships that will, uh, when you add the new product or they begin representing your product, they'll already have the Rolodex uh, and the old school way of thinking of it, or you know uh, they need to have those 5,000 contacts in so that they can get right. to the front of the line uh, yeah. as quickly as possible. So I definitely look for experience uh, in the actual industry is the most important background.
0: So do you rely more on qualifications rather than what someone might say in an interview, you know, how do you kind of conduct it? Let's say if you find someone that, as you said, selling a similar product or maybe comes from a competitor and you are, you know, maybe the final interviewee and you know, it's VP of sales or maybe a senior salesperson that is a real important person for that account. What types of questions do you ask? What do you, you know, what are you looking for beyond the resume?
1: I will generally check the references and I still do that myself because I feel that's not I would rather not delegate that um, because they yeah. if I call somebody that in uh, generally in with a strong background in the industry, I'll usually get a pretty frank answer. And yeah. I find sometimes if you delegate that to maybe an HR manager, they may get the standard answer. But when you have a relationship, uh-huh. even if it's with a competitor, uh, they might give you a nuanced, or they would give you an answer that would be more clear. And oftentimes that will impact the decision because they will say something subtly that um, makes a big difference. So I, I would say that's the biggest thing. I mean, of course, looking at the resume and the experience, but I would really, and, and of course, interviewing the person of asking the questions, but I think really then Mm -hmm. not delegating the role responsibility of doing the background checks to me, uh, for a senior level person, uh, is is worth that time and critical? Yes.
0: Great. Last couple of questions, and then you know, happy to have you add anything else that you think is important. You know, our audience is mostly middle market uh, executives, those in the C suite, those that maybe aspire to it, as well as you know, board members, as well as CEOs. And if you you know, kind of thought about. You know, some career and life advice, particularly those that may be starting out, you know, a decade or so behind you and maybe have their eyes someday on either being an entrepreneur themselves. Uh, you know, the lifeblood of the middle market really are people like your dad and your granddad who got businesses started and carried them on through the generations or, or perhaps themselves looking for something, you know, to get into that corner office sometime, sometime down the line. what What's some of those you know, career and life advice that you'd have for those folks that you think has worked well for you?
1: Well, I would definitely always advise people to go small uh, and, and get involved in a up-and-coming business uh, versus going bigger. I think, generally, the more big a business is, the more likely it is going to be to already have structure and walls. With smaller companies... <laughs> yeah the downside is you will clean the bathrooms uh but the uh, clean the bathrooms <laughs> the the upside is you'll get more <laughs> i i've always uh i've always enjoyed the small and I've said the same thing to my son you know is who's hasn't decided completely yet i i think that uh you'll get more opportunity to learn more you also um you aren't encumbered yet with uh some of those other things that are wonderful in life uh called Children and spouses and mortgages and things like that, so you can take more risk. I would always encourage people uh, in the younger areas to take that risk early, because at the end of the day, what do you? How how bad is it? I was talking with one of our staff members the other day, and he said to me, "I'm Dude. 25," and I'm like, "You're you know, young." That's yeah. Go f- exactly. You know what? What really difference does it make if you fall? down a few times. I would actually view that similar to me in political science in college. Learn early that what you're good at and not good at, find those environments. And then I think also, even though I was very fortunate to spend the majority of my career in a in a uh, single company, I think you should also be not going those early jobs. This is not 1970 and yeah, uh, IBM. Years. or, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I would... T- Technology is changing so rapidly and there are so many great uh, tools out there that this is the best time ever to take ideas and put put yourself yeah. at risk and you can always come back and get a more uh, higher paying job later if you choose to with a more secure company. but I would encourage people to to go out and get into that role in it as quickly as possible?
0: Well, I've, I heard three things there. I heard, you know, d- don't be afraid to fail or even find out things that you don't like to do, right? Because when you're young, you've got the time and don't have the mortgage. Uh, number two, start small, do a lot of different things. You know, it's, it's important to be able, I think, to understand how to, you know, balance a checkbook in addition to, you know, <laughs> clean, the, clean the toilets or, uh, you know, uh, sweep out the parking lot. And then, you know, the third, as you've mentioned, just being entrepreneurial. There are so many new opportunities that are coming out there today, and you know, it doesn't fit everyone's model. But uh, I think we've got probably more inspiration and more creativity and innovation than we've seen at any other time in our history. And uh, there's a lot out there to do. So, uh, Scott Montgomery, I want to thank you for your time. This has been absolutely terrific. Uh, we've enjoyed having you into the corner office.
1: Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed it as well, Brent, and. Uh
0: We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.